Good evening, good morning, good afternoon. Thank you for being our victim on this fine day. I am Preston Barta, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Best Villain. I even hear if you say his name in the mirror five times, who God knows what he'll do. Uh, Brian Kluger, and this is the 29th episode of My Bloody Podcast, your hopefully go-to horror podcast, and we're happy that you're here, and I'm happy that... We're here because uh, we're talking about one of my very absolute favorite horror movies of all time, Candyman. And uh, we're going to discuss horror news as usual, get into my bloody question, have some bloody recommendations for you. And uh, yeah, some, I, some good stuff. We had Thanksgiving. Yeah, we did. It was it was real fun. It was a real Eli Roth Thanksgiving, wasn't it? <laughs> Uh, no, but, uh, I did buy a lot of horror movies, a lot of horror movies over <laughs> the break. That's good. And our, our, our main event today is Candyman. And for some reason, for the last couple of days, I've been singing the, uh, the Willy Wonka, the Candyman Man can. can. <laughs> not yeah. the same Candyman. No, not <laughs> I at all. wish it was. But uh, we're doing well. We're here. Uh, I guess we're we're a little heavier because we ate so much turkey and yes. And I'm just glad you went all out and buying horror movies. On, uh, I guess for the holiday shopping spree. Yeah. Well, uh, at the same time, I was also moving from uh, a smaller town in Ditton, <clears throat> about 30 minutes north of Dallas, moving back to Dallas, and so I had all, all my collection uh boxed up and since it's been five months since i've seen that collection i have new priorities <laughs> and so i was cleaning it out and so i went to half price books movie trade and co and sold back some stuff and got some stuff but i still spent some money at best buy and got some steel books and things was like that, some that. steel books what are the two best ones you got um, I bought a, a Quiet Place 4K okay, on Steelbook um, because I'm not satisfied with the cover art for, <laughs> for the, uh, the original release. I also got um, Shape of Water on 4K Steelbook. Um, it was something that Cole, James Cole Clay and I uh, were uh, interested in getting, and he got it before I did, but uh, it's, a, it's just a beautiful release. I'm not... Too hot on The Shape of Water as a movie. I, I think it's a great film, but um, that that particular Steelbook release was just too beautiful not to own. So I happened to got that. Well, I good, got that as good, well. Good, um, I went When I went to uh, Half Price Books, though, by the way, Half Price Books gives you the best uh, price for the stuff that you sell in comparison to movie trading code. Does it really? Yeah. Movie wise. Yeah. Movie wise. Like what's the, what's the difference when you're experienced? Cause I'm very curious because, well, because half price only gives you cash and I never take cash if I'm a movie trading company because yeah. I get a gift card. And it's well, more. Well, I think that's the benefit of movie trading co is that they make it seem like you're getting more, but I'm, I mean, you can still use, uh, cause they give you like at half price books, they give you a receipt and then you sign it and then you take it up to the desk and you can cash it or right. you can use it as credit towards whatever you're buying. Right. Um, I have sold, 
so I went there twice over the break. Uh, there was some, I took some Blu-rays back, and I think I took five. And they gave me like 20 bucks, I think. And I've done that. And the same types of releases, because it varies on release. Like right. the new releases obviously get more, and the more collectible films get more. But uh, I took the same kind of releases to Movie Trade & Co. And they gave me like, they say $8 cash, 13 credit. Really? And so... I don't. I don't know. I like try to understand their system because it seems like some days it's just like, oh well, maybe we sold too many movies today that we need to cut it back on this guy, or maybe like the, the whoever's running the desk chooses. I don't know, but uh, the best luck I've had has been with half price books because I sold like big box of DVDs and got sixty bucks. And okay, so, and so with that sixty bucks, I got. Uh, so now I'm working on my Vestron collection. Oh, we're so Vestron. it started with Chud Two. So I'm gonna get uh, the Gate, the Gate, good, and uh, Return of the Living Dead Three. Okay, and uh, Dagon, Dagon, yeah, yeah Dagon. gotta get that. Um, but right now, so I started with Chud Two. I now have the Warlock collection, the oh, Wishmaster collection, and the Unholy. Oh, good. I have I have the Unholy, and I have I have the Warlock one. I don't have the Wishmaster one. Yeah. Uh, the Wishmaster is not great. I mean, uh, but they're they're cool to own because those were ones that I watched a lot when I was younger. But so I'm I'm happy that I so own you're them. You're getting this, yeah. And it's unfortunate because Vestron. I like Vestron, but they're just kind of like the lesser version of Collector's uh, edition of Screen they're, Factory. The slip covers are nice design. There, it's the same. And then when you open it, there's just a plain white background for the disc, and the disc itself is the same art as the cover yeah um but it it does have like nice special features and things like that but for for its price which is like ranges depending on where you go like you can go to walmart and i know like you can get maximum overdrive for 17 dollars. but if you go to movie trade and co or online it's close to 30 um and it's just not worth it right in in comparison to like some of the shout factory releases or arrow um, it's just not as fun to collect. Yeah, because I think some of the extras on Vestrons are just kind of okay, and they're not the greatest transfers. But yeah, they're still. I like what they're doing. Yeah, I want them to step it up. Is what I want. Yeah, I want it looks say. nice on the shelf when you because they have the numbers on the side. Yes, um, it's almost like criteria. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you can feel a little more special because I own all the MVD Rewind collection, and I've kept up with those. And so right now, I think I'm on thirteen. Uh, so they just look real nice when they're all lined up and you have one through 13. Do you ever whatever. find yourself just kind of just like looking at your collection? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> uh, my wife makes fun of me for it all the time. Um, it, just the other day, actually, uh, she was – because she started teaching at a new school and she was like, I got to print off some stuff because our printer's in our uh, – which is our guest room, which is also where I have my movie collection. And she was like, I need to print off some stuff. Maybe you can go in there and keep me company. I don't know, stare at your collection or something. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking of ways to kind of rearrange it. And it's, it's a very nerdy thing to do. But, uh, but I like to say, because I'm proud of it. I spent a lot of money. Yeah. I worked really hard. And I, I like to uh, admire it. No, I... I totally get you. I do the same thing with the records and the movies. Um, so and I, 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 I get that. I'm just glad there's somebody else. 
Yeah. <laughs> just kind of, we just like to admire our collections and look at it and, you know. <laughs> yeah. Because at the, I, I have this conversation with Cole a lot when we're buying movies. We think, all right, take a step back, think. Are you buying this for yourself or are you buying this to show it off to somebody else more so than yourself? Most of the time it's for ourselves. Yes. But <laughs> partly you like to show it off because that that's part of like owning all these discs because they look good and you like to show them off. They're shelf jewelry. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, it's like any other collection. I think that if you have a collection and I think with the movies, you know, collecting that stuff, I think that it's, it's, it's fun and, you know. I think a big part for me is, you know, having somebody like you or a big movie buff come over and you're like, oh, God, we have this. Yeah, we, we can appreciate gonna, it together. Yeah. It's, a, it's like being at Fantastic Fest and, like, everybody's collecting, you know, we all get it. There's, like, an unwritten, like, club or, like, oh, yeah. we all have this really fucking weird movie here yeah. that we love. No, I love that. And I'm glad you do that, too, because I do that. It's like... It's like I'm just, I'm just looking, just looking at the records, looking at these movies. All the Scream Factories are together. All the Criterions are together. Yeah. And then you're just like, well, oh, I'll watch this today. <laughs> it's good, but we've got we've got horror movies to talk about. Horror movie news uh, on the podcast. Uh, we talked about Haunting of Hill House recently with David Lowry, our our new best friend. <laughs> and uh, you know, if you've seen this show. There is, you know, they set it up sort of for, like, a sequel series, but not necessarily for, like, the same cast. Um, but I don't think Netflix has actually renewed it for a second season, So, and I think it's done so well. Um, I just don't see it not happening, but there's a possibility. Yes. Uh, it seems uh, that I, I would imagine that there's a lot of conversations going on right now that they haven't released to the public. But I know Mike Flanagan, the director of the entire series or miniseries, uh, has expressed no interest in revisiting uh, the Crane or like coming back uh, with the Crane family because um, he's told that story and there's it's like you know beating a dead horse at this point. But uh, he has, and so has Carla Giacchino, who also stars in the series as the mother. Um, has expressed interest in coming back if that possibility was to come up. Um, but treat it in the same way that they do American Horror Story, where it's an anthology series. It could be the same house. I think we even talked about it with David Lowry, how mm-hmm. like those are the kind of directions that they could take it in. Um, whether it was the same house or a different house, there's just, uh, there's a lot of haunted houses out there and there's a lot of people that are haunted by their, their, their past. Um, so there's a lot of different directions that they could take it in. So if they were to make a new series, I'd be all, all for it. And has there been any word from Netflix or anybody like we're thinking about it? Uh, as far as I know, no, I know other than Carla Giacchino just saying if, if Mike Flanagan came back because they have a good relationship, uh, a good working relationship, that uh, she would come back and play a different character. Cool. If that, uh, if it were to happen, um, but I know that Mike Flanagan has at least said on Twitter that um, he doesn't has no interest in coming back to the Crane family, but would be open, possibly open to the possibility of. Uh, coming back for uh, another season if it were taken into the anthology direction. 
And I hope if Netflix does revive this for a second season, they pick either Flanagan or another director to do all episodes. Yeah, because we, we, we talked about that, that uh, it's with David Lowry about how um, there's a lot of inconsistencies with uh, different directors coming on. Like that can, I feel like that kind of, personally, I think that kind of approach works really well with like comedy series, dramatic series. Um, but I mean, you could argue that the, the haunting of Hill house is drama as much as it is horror, but it's still horror. And, but I think for something that's just so rich and textured as that it works well. If the same person is seeing it from beginning to end, kind of like with a lot of the jobs that I do at my job, I, when it, you've invested so much time into it, you, part of you kind of dies if you were to hand it off to somebody, but then, you know, you're kind of partly relieved too. Cause you're like, Oh, it was so stressful. Right. 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 But, um, I think it works best, uh, when you have the same person going, seeing it from beginning to end. Well, yeah, if they do it right, I'm all in, I would, I'd definitely be down, but it doesn't seem like, you know, even for next Halloween, even though it's just, you know, 11 months away, yeah, you might get one or not. Yeah. I think, like with Stranger Things, like the third season should have came out this year, but they're taking more time. And same thing with Game of Thrones, they're taking more time. I think uh, it's nice, you know, it, it's it hurts the fans that they want, they have a craving. Like it right, be- right. becomes part of the tradition. Like, oh, Halloween, yeah, I like to watch Stranger Things, or I, you know, April or May or whatever. Yeah, I like yeah. to watch Game of Thrones. Um, that uh, it's upsetting when you hear, ah, oh, they're. It's going to be another year, but at the same time, you're like, I'm glad that they're taking the time to get it right. Right, right. I, I get that. And it's going to be so interesting because all those kids in Stranger Things, speaking of Stranger Things, are at that age where, like, they're just, like, growing rapidly. <laughs> yeah. So, like, the next season, they're all going to have deep voices and, and beards. Yeah, and beards. <laughs> next on our list of horror news, Zoe, Zoe Deutsch. Right? Am I saying that right? Correct. Uh, the the female actress in Everybody Wants Some, right? Female actress. The female, the male actress. <laughs> the chick, the lady, the dude. Hitting all the sore spots. Yeah, all the sore spots. Um, what else? She was in something recently, right? She was, well, Everybody Wants Some. Uh, she was in that romantic comedy that was on Netflix, the Set, set It Up. Okay. Yes, she, I think that's what it was called. She's been in a bunch of stuff. Yeah, she she's the daughter of Tessa or not Tessa. I'm saying Tessa Thompson. <laughs> uh, uh, what's her name from Back to the Future? Oh, um, Elizabeth Shue. No, no wait, not the second. Oh, the mom uh, Perkins, right? Elizabeth Perkins? No, no, no. 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 That's different. Le- Lisa Thompson. Oh, yes, Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson. Jeez. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We are professionals. Yeah. <laughs> what you do when you don't have a computer in front of you. Yes. Um, yeah, she's the she's the daughter of Lisa Thompson. Okay. Leah, Leah Thompson. 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 Leah Thompson. Leah, Leah, Leah. <laughs> the mother Leah. of Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. Correct. Um, yeah, so she's going to be in... She's the first new character or, not, or new role in the second Zombieland film, which we have covered on the news before saying that the original cast they're surviving members no bill murray unfortunately but they'll uh, get they'll get somebody yeah (laughs) 
they'll get somebody to replace that. And we we do know that like Abigail and Woody and Jesse and Emma Stone, yeah. Emma is coming back. Yeah. And so Ruben Flesher is the director, which he hasn't been on a winning streak, in my opinion. Not at all since that movie. since that movie. <laughs> um, and they've been they've been trying to do this sequel or some sort of sequel or TV series to this movie since the movie came out, and nothing's ever gotten off the ground. So this looks like it finally happened. Yeah, yeah. Like they they're they have all the ducks in order to make it happen. It seems. Um, but that's as far as we know. We don't know what her character, who she actually plays, but, um, I like her. I um, like her too. I think so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really know what to think of what, what the movie will be at this point because it's been, it's been a long time and, um, uh, as we say with the director hasn't exactly been on the winning streak in terms of the types of films that he's been putting out. But uh, with all these, all the original heads together again, uh, there's, it, it at least has to be fun. Oh, yes. So. I, I, I have complete faith in a Zombieland 2 with everybody. I'm all in. Yeah. All right. Uh, and, oh, and it's coming out October 11, 2019. Oh, right in time for Halloween. Correct. <clears throat> That's good. So... It's the end of the year, award season's coming up, and for us, quotations, professionals, I put I put myself in that category, not you, Preston, because you are professional. Um, <laughs> we get a lot of uh, screeners for awards and stuff like that, and the two at the top of our list, both of our lists, are horror films, which hopefully will get some fucking recognition. Um, a Quiet Place and Hereditary, and I've gone back and watched Hereditary, and holy shit, this movie is just insanely good on literally every level. Like, the way that director, Ari, Aster, Aster yeah. did that film <clears throat> and all the subtly, sub, subtle little notions and everything in it, I don't see how there's a better movie than that. Like, everything that was done in that movie had a purpose. Yeah. And it wasn't just hit you over the head with a hammer blatant. It like took several times to go through and like, holy shit, everything is connected in this movie. Yeah. Well, it seems like it takes like knowledgeable people like us who have very deep roots in the horror genre, who have an understanding, kind of like The Shining. I don't think The Shining was as celebrated as at, at its time. Um, but it's like yeah, on a people pretty profound things. level right now. Right, it seems like one of those movies that would stand the test of time better, um, and will still be studying and picking out different meanings, um, kind of like Candyman, um, where uh, somebody like myself or yourself, other film uh, horror film fans, uh, would be able to recognize right away or after a few viewings that this movie's pretty top notch in all its areas and um won't dismiss it like a lot of common critics would um so but i it seems like the only uh good thing that it has going for it for everybody is tony collette's performance and you try to think about that is there really because i know we haven't seen everything out there but this year but is there somebody better, another actress better than her? Um, 
on the spot, I can't, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I've liked other performances out of The Favorite, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos' film. Uh, ben is Back had good performances from Juliet Robert for Julia Roberts. Um, but when but, you look at Tony Collette in the scene where she's mourning, is like insane, otherworldly. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I would be very happy if she won. And at this moment, when I think about it, like even uh, well, uh, Emily Blunt is very good. In a quiet place too, but I don't right. think it stacks against uh, what Tony Collette does. Even though that birthing scene's insane yes, in a quiet it, place, it really is. in in her ability to do that, and she's also very good in Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> <laughs> Same role, really. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh. But. It, I, I could see that that would be the only thing that it would be nominated for, and which would be a damn shame because uh, you know the production design's really good, the cinematography's the good, cinematography's Ari Aster's yeah. direction's great, but that just seems to be the common thing. But I feel like A Quiet Place has a better chance because it's more of like a middle ground film of being something that's recognized as horror, but has that that family appeal that's a little more accessible and hereditary, that it would stand a better chance and might inch closer and closer towards horror being recognized uh, by the Academy, like Silence of the Lambs and things like that. Well, the only recent one that could be in this place would be the Vavitch, the witch. Yeah. Like, I liked It Follows, but that was never going to be anything, you know, Academy-wise. Right. But, even though I love that movie, but with The Witch, I think, or Vivitch, uh, do you know how to say that? We <laughs> keep calling it Vivitch because it's more fun. <laughs> the Vivitch, uh, I think that is on par with Quiet Place and Hereditary as far as, like, overall filmmaking on Yeah, like, the, yeah, uh, the acting, the story, the technical achievement is all there. Um, that... I I think it would have a better chance of being recognized. Uh, but, yeah, like I said, I hope that these films are recognized in more categories. But I could see just Tony Collette being nominated for uh, Hereditary and then Quiet Place possibly making it into uh, Best Film. Because uh, right now, um, Tony Collette won Best Actress at the Gotham Independent Awards. So she's gaining a momentum at this point um because i that's the point of what we do we but uh a quiet place has made its way into the national board of review as one of the top 10 films that uh that's being recognized as the best of the year um if anybody else is curious uh, some of the other films on that list is the ballad of buster scruggs which i know you really loved a lot brian i did uh black panther can you ever forgive me which I haven't seen, but curious to see it. Um, eighth Grade, which I love. First Reform, which I love, which is nice because I'm glad that I was afraid that that movie also is going to be fall into like hereditary where it would just be forgotten. Yeah. Or it would just be Ethan Hawke that would be recognized. That's right. It. But I, I'm, I'm glad that that's making its way in there. Uh, if Bell Street Could Talk, Mary Poppins Returns, Roma, and A Star is Born. So those are they're all. Ten so points. you mentioned Eighth Grade. I watched that. Yeah. I hated it. <laughs> really? Why? Just everything. I, I mean, I thought like visually it was pleasing. Like it was just like it was well done. But oh man, I, I'm not the audience for that mo- movie. I did not like the main character. I thought she was horrible. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. And I was like, 
oh, why are we following her? She's terrible. To, like, the best character in the movie, her dad. <laughs> well, I identify with her dad a lot, but uh, I... When I interviewed uh, Bo Burnham for it at South by, not trying to drop names here, but um, <laughs> it, I just had an interesting conversation with him, which it made the film uh, make a lot of sense to me or more sense to me um, that he identifies himself as somebody that's in, in between uh, being a child and being an adult. And that's kind of like where I came into the film or that, that was my perspective of the film that I was siding with the parents more so now because as a parent and he was funny and enjoyable, but the, the, the kid, um, uh, Elsa Fisher, uh, she, I feel like she accurately portrays that sort of anxiousness, uh, being nervous as, because uh, cause I identified a, a lot with that when I was younger until, um, you know, high school where, where you, you tend to break out. But I I enjoyed her journey, and especially how they talk. There's a specific way with all those likes and ums. And, right. um, and I feel like it's a realistic portrayal of eighth grade or being a middle schooler or being young and confused as to, like, how how you should uh, this is a huge like sidebar on a horror podcast. No, it but, really, but, but I just remember you saying that I was like, how is this? How is this nominated or getting buzz? See, like, it's like it's it. it's in my it's in my top ten at the moment. Really? Yeah. What? I, I really I really love it. Um, at the, I watched it again over uh, the holiday break with my family, and it's just such a special film to me because. I can just relate to uh, being confused as a as a young kid of like who you want to be, and j- just for them for the film to like accurately show you uh, all those uh, concerns, uh, things that you're afraid of uh, so well, um, all that all your inner thoughts just being laid out there like that. I just haven't seen it done like that in a film. I feel like. Um, Another director would have came in, done it like a uh, very Hollywood style and have somebody die or have something like that. I feel like it unfolds very realistically like a Richard Linklater film. And I think that's why I liked it so much. And I took a lot of uh, uh, lessons out of some of the things that she was trying to teach, like in her YouTube videos that she was doing. Because like even she didn't really uh, – because she's teaching that doesn't mean that she's she, using that, yeah, yeah uh, applying that to her life at all. And I think that's kind of how I feel. Like whenever I was in high school and somebody would ask me like relationship advice or whatever it was, um, I would tell them something necessar- that I don't necessarily apply to my life, but it just it feels nice because it's inching you a little bit closer towards yeah. actually applying that. So I liked all that stuff. I thought she was good. Uh, and uh, portrayed youth very well, so I think it's a good film. So. I, I'm 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 glad and sorry you liked it, <laughs> but 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 yeah, that's fine. You don't. You, a lot of these kind of films kind of uh, are based on taste. Yeah, af- after watching that, I really just wanted to put in Perks of Being a Wallflower because I kind of like it's kind of like like a awkward kid going into high school and stuff, and I like that movie better. I don't okay. know. Oh, I guess I identified more with that movie in certain aspects. Um, but eighth grade, cause I, I remember seeing it and it's like, everybody loved it. And I watched it and I was like, I don't get it. I, I, I get it. I mean, I like that 
you know, in her first YouTube video, I know that this is a side note that she was using all the likes and ums by the end. She wasn't using any because she was more confident. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Okay. We got to get back to horror and blood yeah. and shit and everything. <laughs> I just, Th- that movie is a horror movie as a parent. Yes, it is. And I thought that one Especially of the best, one scene. Yeah, the, that, I think that was the best scene because that was like really, I feel like that would have been so realistic for young people these days, you know, because like that scene in the car is just, oh, like I, I actually sat up and I was like, oh, this is going to get weird. Yeah. And they handled it very well, but alas, yes. And that, and that horror aspect, yes. And I'd it counts. That goes on probably every day with absolutely everybody. So, all right, <laughs> moving on yeah. uh, to coincide with our main event, Candyman. I guess they are rebooting Candyman. Uh, Jordan Peele from Get Out and Key and Peele. He is going to produce and write a remake, uh, which is set to release uh, in 2020. Yeah. Um, it, it has been since clarified that it's going to be a spiritual sequel. Okay. So uh, Tony Todd has not been announced or anybody else taken on that But role. he should, though. I hope so. <laughs> Um, He's still around. He's still a badass. Yeah. Uh, We can kind of get into uh, some of, like, the things that he could possibly change uh, when we get into our review of Candyman. And uh, there's a lot of directions that he could take in, especially coming off of Get Out. Like, there's, like, way more things that he could probably add. All the social stuff. Yeah, he could hit that harder. Um, But, yeah, as of now, so... Nia DeCosta is going to direct the film. She's an African-American uh, woman. Do we know who this is? She directed this movie called Little Woods, uh, which I have not seen, but it has uh, people in, in in the film that you would recognize, like Tessa Thompson. Okay. Not Leah Thompson. Not Tia. <laughs> T- Tessa Thompson uh, from uh, Thor Ragnarok and the Creed films. Um, uh, and, and Lily James. And um, Lily James, was she in uh, Baby Driver? Yeah, she was the yeah. the waitress, right? Yeah. Uh, and James Badgedale, which uh, we all love. Which we all uh, love. Um, so, yeah, it was like this uh, modern Western film that had to deal with siblings and um, like having to go outside the law for, to better their lives or something like that. But uh, I haven't seen the film, so I haven't, I don't really have anything to add of like what she could bring to the film. But, um, I trust Jordan Peele. Well, good for Jordan for giving somebody like an up and comer a shot, like at a pretty big franchise thing. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's nice because uh, I was listening to some podcasts for this is a sidebar moment of of uh, the Creed films uh, with uh, dir- director Ryan Kluger who did the first one, and then the director I can't think of the name Steve something who did the second one, but uh, they both were like uh, I think USC students, but they they were just just kids in a class. Uh, recognized from comedy that's now kind of uh became more of like a serious director uh and film producer that it's just cool that he's given chances to people who are have a lot of ideas and a lot of creativity and is not doing like the whole star wars approach where they're giving it to people seasoned directors or, right right or uh white guys yeah um <laughs> so I, I i'm glad that uh he's taken uh more chances on uh on unknown people and just kind of see what they come up with especially with something that's as as uh acclaimed at least in my eyes as candy candy man is um, so I'm, I'm very excited, especially that he's writing it. I think that's going to be a, gonna a be nice big. addition. 
So yeah, there, it comes out in 2020, so we have a little while. And June 12th, 2020, actually. Correct. And now, that's summertime. Yeah. Doesn't Star Wars come out around the same time? Um, I don't know. They keep flip-flopping uh, based on if they can get a, a screenplay together or the directors okay. together. Um, but, yeah, I guess the, the date for Star Wars used to be, like, May. Um, yeah, okay. So uh, I don't – I haven't really looked to see, like, when the It's next very up. interesting this horror movie going to be released in the middle of a big summer blockbuster season. Yeah, which I don't think they should. Yeah, um, I think like February. But, but, yeah, February seems to be a popular – I guess because um, – Valentine's Day and yeah. like nothing else coming out. Like I yeah. imagine that would make more money. Yeah, like that'd be a good day, or excuse me, um, around Halloween before Halloween, September, something like that. But but you also don't want that whole area to be stuffed with horror films. Correct, correct. Uh, yeah, no. So, but we're getting another Candyman movie. Hopefully, with Tony Todd, I'm sure we will be talking about the news and stuff like that as it comes available. Right? Yes. So, yeah, no, Candyman, Jordan Peele, um, I, I look forward to it, but we'll get back to Candyman in a little bit. Uh, but first, we have a bloody question, right? Yes, we do. Uh, so, I guess kind of coming back to Candyman is where the idea came from since Candyman is kind of based on, or not kind of, is an urban legend. Um, so, I th- wanted to pose the question of what is the scariest urban legend of your childhood that you just believed? (laughs) Two, there's two of them right near my parents' house growing up. There was this old abandoned like clubhouse, um, kind of like, you know, a block over or something like that. And all of us kids used to think it was haunted. And if you got up real close to it, you could see spirits and evil shit. And every time we would go near it, like the wind would blow weird. Everything was just dusty and cobwebs and sound like you would see in like an old horror movie with an old house. And there was a pool table in there. And like, I could swear you could see like the balls moving, you know, <laughs> here and there by themselves. And that was one of them. And the other one was out at my, uncle and aunt's house they lived in bonham texas which is in the middle of nowhere country they had a lot of land and farm animals and stuff but i used to spend the night out there every once in a while and they would say that there is a crazy maniac on the loose named mr mercury and he had an axe and he would come spy on you while you're asleep and all sorts of shit and i would not want to go outside past dark and oh it was some scary shit (laughs) mr mercury those were the two urban legends that i grew up with that always scared me yeah. What about uh, you, Preston? Uh, I guess mine kind of goes hand in hand with uh, Candyman, but uh, where I, where I grew up, uh, Denton, Texas, uh, I think in Argyle, there's this um, bridge called Old Alton Bridge, but everybody called it Goatman's Bridge, and um, the the legend that I was told, which is common commonly told uh, amongst uh, a lot of people who live in Denton. Um, is that on this bridge, a, uh, African-American entrepreneur, uh, I think his name was Oscar Washburn. He, um, tended this, uh, farm that had goats and, um, he lived there with his family and children and, uh, he was, it was successful because he was, he was there, you know, for, for meat purposes, uh, milk and cheese and things like that. And so it was doing well. And so he put a sign on the bridge that said like goat, goat, he called, called himself the goat man. Um, 
uh, that uh, goat man this way. So, you, you know, you go over the bridge and then go get whatever you need. Um, so the KKK, KKK, all right, make sure I did three, um, uh, saw this, got wind of it, and uh, it upset them. So uh, they went and got the goat man and took him to the bridge, put a noose around his neck and threw him over the bridge. And then when they went to go look down to see if he was there, he was gone. And, uh, so they went and searched the forest, tried to look for him, couldn't find him. And so they went back to the farm and then burnt the house with the family inside to try to see if he would come back, but he didn't. Um, so if you go to this bridge at midnight and knock on it three times, knock on the steel bridge three times, you will, uh, get like a nasty smell or even see like visions of him either as a, like a goat man, like a demonic goat man looking Whoa. thing. Uh, and people have <laughs> shared stories about that. And, um, uh, or some even see him as his, has his human form, but just, or seeing glowing eyes or whatever it is. Um, you could also go over the bridge and shut your car light car lights off and then flash them three times and then he'll also appear. So, uh, <laughs> reflects a lot of the, the lore that's in candy. Man. No, for sure. But, um, it was something that was, uh, scary to me because I lived very close to that bridge <laughs> and we would go fishing down there with the kids in the neighborhood and my father. And so just, we would all just talk and speculate. And did you ever do it? Did you knock um, on that thing three times? I, I feel like I did. Um, I don't, I don't, it was never at midnight though. Um, <laughs> because I was a kid and I wouldn't go out there at midnight. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, so I was always uh, fearful of that whole story. Uh, but but then I remember when I moved to Aubrey, Texas, uh, across the across town, about 20 minutes across town, um, there was like a little house out there, and then we would create our own legends out right. of that, uh, seeing ghosts and whatnot. Um, but it ended up just being an abandoned dollhouse that was just out there. That's scary um, still, too. So, But yeah, Goatman's Bridge, that was... Goatman's Bridge. It's a good name. That too. is a great... That's, that's a, a great... That's a movie in the making. No, it really is. That sounds awesome. I like that. Let us know if you have any urban legends you grew up with. We want to hear them. Uh, before we get on to our recommendations, we've got to bring up some Mondo releases. Uh, Mondo on vinyl has released two Castlevania record albums. One is the video game The Symphony of the Night, uh, and the other one is Castlevania Rondo of Blood. And uh, damn good if you remember ever playing Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Holy shit, one of the best soundtrack uh, video game soundtracks ever. And it sounds so good. Uh, of course, they are printed on 180-gram vinyl from Mondo, and they're colored like smoke and red. It looks great, and it sounds even better, and the artwork is insanely good. Have you listened to any of these? I have not. Have They're not. good. Do you ever play Castlevania? I did not. No. No. You're so just completely unknown to it. Completely unknown. Do you ever watch the new animated series on a Netflix? Oh. 
you're, you you should get into that whole world of Castlevania. It's pretty good. Hard. It's not like your glitter vampires. They're the real deal. Mm. Um, yeah, sure. I'll, I have a lot of room in my life where I can fit that in. <laughs> They're really quick episodes of Castlevania. But yes, they are on Mondo uh, soundtrack vinyl. Uh, get those from Mondo.com. MondoTees.com, actually. But yeah, Castlevania, they sound excellent. You can get the whole video game in that awesome synth. Uh, like 24-bit, 8-bit goodness uh, in it. So, yeah, do that, Mondo, Castlevania. But let's move on to Bloody Recommendations, um, where we give you a recommendation, new or old, that you we suggest you watch immediately, again or for the first time. Um, should I go first? Yeah, go for it. Okay. The movie I'm going to talk about today is a movie that was released in 1972, it's kind of like How I Met Your Mother, but it's called You'll Like My Mother. Mm. And it's definitely not how like How I Met Your Mother. <laughs> Just the title. <laughs> Just the title. It's a horror thriller. Um, it's one of those like long, lost, forgotten horror movies that still manages to keep that suspense some 45 years later. But um, the director is Lamont Johnson. It's a very sadistic tale that could it's, – it's actually rated PG, uh, and it does not rely on, like, high-octane thrills or blood and guts. It's just, like, the very slow, suspenseful build. Um, so it, it stars Patty Duke, Richard Thomas, uh, C.N. Barbara Allen, and Rosemary Murphy. So it actually has – a pretty decent cast, but the film follows Patty Duke, who plays a chick named Francesca, who very recently became a widow because her husband was killed in Vietnam, and she is pregnant with his baby. Uh, mm. She is very depressed because she has nobody around with her, so she travels to Minnesota, a very snowy region of Minnesota, to spend some time with – it's a great idea – with her mother-in-law, <laughs> who she has never met before. Well, when Francesca gets there, her mother-in-law is definitely not thrilled to see her or wants to take care of her or the baby. But the snowstorm happens, and they're forced to be there with her. So um, Francesca soon finds out that her mother-in-law is more sinister than she lets on, let alone that they're not the only people in the house either. There is a serial rapist and murder on the loose and a mentally disabled girl living in the house the tagline of the film is, run, Francesca, run for your life. It's solid advice. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's really good. It's a slow burn. Uh, there's a lot of menacing shadows around the corners and slow suspense, but it's actually very effective this way and really good still to this day. Um, so, yeah, horror. You'll- Preston, what is your recommendation, good sir? Um, well, since, uh, we've have this, uh, I guess, common theme of 1992 releases with Candyman coming out in 1992 and the film that we did last week, Sleepwalkers, was also 1992. <laughs> That's a damn good year. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm also picking a movie, uh, from 1992 called Single White, F- Single White Female. Holy shit. I, re- I, I remember seeing that in the theater with my parents. I was 11. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Not great. But um, I think I remember seeing it when I was younger, but uh, Scream Factory just released it, and I watched it uh, again, or maybe for the first time. Um, So I've had my... I've seen my fair share of stalker dramas, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what what this movie is. 
Um, but I haven't seen one that's kind of asked this question of like, what if you let your stalker in on your life? Because, uh, you know, in most films, uh, they're separate. Yeah. They're <laughs> like, no, they have the common, uh, knowledge or they have the idea to like, no, you're, you're not going to come into my life at all. But, uh, this one asked that. And as you could probably guess, it's, it doesn't lead to anything good. Yeah. Would you let your stalker into your life? No, <laughs> no, I wouldn't hesitate. But but uh, the the idea is that uh, Bridget Fonda, who's in the film, so she puts out uh, this ad um, looking for a roommate because she was recently broke up with her uh, her lover, played by Stephen Weber from Wings. <laughs> um, uh, finds out that. Uh, he was having a relationship with somebody else, and so she needs somebody to uh, live in the her condo with her because uh, she can't afford it. So she puts out this ad and is looking for other people, kind of like Miss Doubtfire style, when they're like looking for different nannies, and it's just not working. Person after person, it's just not working. Um, so she ends when she's just about giving up all hope. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee pops up and lands on her doorstep, and. Uh, just seems like the perfect choice. Um, they bond over like silly shit. Like she the seems f- awesome. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they bond over like, uh, the, the faucet breaking in the kitchen and then they're just, just all different types of stuff. Like they're just enjoying each other's company and it just seems ideal and great. But for anybody who knows, maybe had seen the trailer and knows that it's a thriller. It's not, you know, everything that's good is not as good as it seems. Right. Um, so, um, a lot of things happen, but, uh, like a dog, like, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee finds a dog and, uh, thinks that it'd be like a great thing for them. But, uh, Bridget Fonda is, doesn't like that idea at all. Um, and, uh, the dog dies <laughs> by Jennifer Jason Lee. But, um, when Bridget Fonda slowly begins to realize just how crazy this woman is, uh, especially when it comes to like, I think it was after the dog sequence that, uh, she wanted to J- Jennifer Jason Lee's character wanted to make it up to her. And so they were like going out shopping or whatever it is, get their hair done. And yeah. she, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee gets her hair cut just like Bridget Fonda's character, like got it colored and that short pixie look. And, yep. uh, that, I think that's when Bridget Fonda slowly begins to realize that, so there's Holy something there. She has like some sort of sinister plan here. Right. Um, and, um, and then Steven Weber comes back into the picture and, um, it, it, it gets a little, uh, m- more freaky after that. There's like little s- small things that Jennifer Jason Lee does. Like, uh, I think they're like putting on a necklace or putting on accessories or clothing or something, doing her hair and Jennifer Jason Lee just smells her just like, yeah, stuff like that. <laughs> just like all these little things that are just really freaky. Um, but, but by the end of the film that you find out that there's, there's more to Jennifer Jason Lee's character that kind of makes the story a little more tragic. Um, it involves, as it's teased in the opening of the film, uh, that she had a twin sister and she lost that twin sister. Right. And uh, she's looking to fill that void and that caused a lot of trauma. Um, they don't quite handle the mental, hil- uh, mental illness um, 
aspect of the film very well. At it was least early nineties. Yeah, it was early nineties. <laughs> um, so that doesn't quite hold up. But just and then there's like little things like there's like you know Chekhov's gun kind of thing. Uh, yes. Like there's a. Uh, like a screwdriver introduced early in the film uh, when they're going on a going down up and down an elevator and like sometimes when the door gets jammed she's like hey look Bridget Fonda's here like hey look at the screwdriver and you know at some point in the film that that's going to come back up right so uh, the movie kind of ends in like a Hollywood type of way but I think Jennifer Jason Leigh gives a very good performance in the film it's very creepy and uh, for her alone I think. Um, it's worth checking out again. I think it's probably like a, you know, a six out of 10 kind of film, but, uh, I just really enjoyed her performance and just the idea of thinking about if somebody was stalking you, like, uh, would you want to be that kind of generous person? Would you recognize it right away? Or would you be that kind of person that's uh, blinded by it and wouldn't reckon you'll find out at the worst possible time. Right. Um, So for, for all those reasons, I think it's uh, it's worth checking out again. So single white female, nineteen ninety two. Absolutely, I like that movie. It's it's a, it's a good one. I wonder if they'll ever remake that. I guess they've kind of like done similar things, but never to that level. I think it's because it's the first part of the movie. It's like oh, this could be kind of like a comedy between two ladies moving in together, meeting each other. Yeah, and it's just kind of like whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting to see how they would handle it in uh, today's era because right now, you know, you got Facebook stalkers and stuff right. like that, people who stalk you. And that, 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 so I guess that would be like Ingrid Goes West. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but yes, yes. Yeah, also a really good film. But, I, uh, do, do you, do you, do we know if we have any stalkers at all? Uh, <laughs> I, not, not that I know of. Like in, like, not, so much as I'm gonna say that thing. I do, be, so yeah. nobody gets the idea listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's being pretty. My life is hell. Please don't add to it. Yeah, <laughs> he's living in a horror movie right now. <laughs> he's really not. He's doing well. Uh, okay, on to our main event of the of the 29th podcast of my bloody podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Candyman sprinkles it with love and makes the world taste good. <laughs> Not that Candyman. This is Candyman of a different level. Uh, this movie, of course, came out September 11th, 1992. Actually premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival. Came out a month later towards Halloween of 1992. Um, and was directed by Bernard Rose, who who did a couple things after this. Nothing... This was his best film, uh, per se, but it's a slasher film at its core, but over the years, I mean, this movie's been out for so many years now, there's so much to this movie on many different levels that we'll get into, right? Yes. Lots to unpack. Yes. And, like, I wonder if they actually knew it back then that this was kind of happening, or, I, I mean, it's... To put yourself in those shoes back then and to watch it today because it's very relevant today with all the shit we have going on now. Yeah. Um, you, Preston, talk to me. Um, I guess uh, just generally speaking, um, before we dive into the nitty and gritty of it all, um, I think that 
they didn't exactly know what they were creating at the time. It felt like they were creating like Frankenstein's monster of a film where it had all these different things. And uh, from what I understand from watching all the extras on this, uh, the, the screen fact. Yeah, they have a lot of extras that unpack all the stuff that goes with it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like um, th- there's interviews with the cast members, uh, old archival uh, behind the scenes and making ofs on there. And one of my favorites was uh, this interview with um, two two writers. Um, um, make sure I got their their names right. Uh, if I can find it, uh, d- did you watch any of these extras yet? No, I haven't watched any of the extras yet. Okay, so yeah, I uh, I, I guess to kind of go down the list of I, I started with Tony Todd's new interview, and a lot of these uh, interviews uh, were done by Arrow because Arrow also has the Candyman release that came out. And right. So like at the end of the interviews, you'll see that they were made by Arrow. Um, but there was there was a few uh, like like the kid in the film and uh, another woman that's in the film uh, that they scream factory got those interviews with them. So, yeah. um, and they, you can see that they tried to keep the consistency there with the way that they put together these uh, special features. But, uh, the, the reason why I bring all these up is because, um, the the they all bring up in their interviews and what they've talked about is the, the reason why they were intrigued by the whole project is because there's a lot of meat on the bone um <laughs> more so one way than another yeah um minus the hand uh, <laughs> um so yeah, there's there there's uh there's there's social commentary um the the Candyman's backstory there's a lot to take take from it and so there's just there's so many things to talk about and so many things are just inexplicable like they don't explain like what what why this happens why this why this happens and so um a lot of people have kind of created theories and i would like when we're going down the plot of the film from beginning to end i think we can dive a little more deeper into them because there's the movie brings up a lot of questions and that's the reason why i like it so much i, I think it has a it's a it's weird. It's it has this strange balance where you know, like if any other horror movie felt like this, where they had left you with this many questions, you would just be like so overwhelmed by it to the point where you're just dismiss it entirely and be like, oh well, well that is what it is. But there, there's a sense of romanticism in the film. It's scary. Um, I've heard people saying this is one of their the scariest movie they've seen before. Uh, yeah, uh, to me it was that because, uh, when it was one of the films that I used to watch a lot as a kid, um, you know, I talked about, you know, Jaws and Scream and films like that, but this was probably the third one that I would see the cover a lot. And, you know, you see the cover of the original cover of the, the eyeball that had Candyman in it and it has a B on it. And so like David Lowry said, where he'd look at the covers and just kind of wonder like what that was about, uh, that was me. And then I finally mustered the courage to watch it and it scared me as a child. And I, I remember that the opening of the film, the most with, uh, Ted Raimi and <laughs> yeah, it, Sam uh, Raimi's Ra- brother. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> of, because that's, that's the, that's them setting the, uh, putting the, the urban legend in place. So you understand like what it means when you say Candyman five times into a mirror and he appears and cuts you slashes you. Yeah. Um, 
and so that just the opening alone scared me as a child. Um, but, uh, I just took it as a scary film, but now that I watch it as an adult, I'm just seeing it from a whole different perspective. And, uh, it's it's more kind of like what I was saying with a uh, single white female. It's more of like a tragic story. Like you 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 understand uh, where Candyman's coming from, um, and then if you see the other films, because there's two more: uh, Candyman, Farewell of the Flesh, and then the one that went straight to DVD. Um, I think it was uh, uh, Day of the Dead or something. like yes, that. Yes, Day of the Dead, Farewell of the Flesh, and Day of the Dead. Um, they they further illustrate his backstory because in this film the only backstory that we get is kind of told through the paintings right. and uh, from one professor guy that has did studies on it and he tells us the story of what happened. But uh, yeah, overall, uh, I think it's a pretty near perfect film that has uh, leaves me with a lot of questions, things that I may wonder if it was intentional or not. And some things where maybe Jordan Peele can approve upon them and make it a little clearer because there's, there's things to, that I'm, I'm just really want to dive into here when it comes to his, the character design, and right. his backstory. So I think that's something that we can get into as we go down. It is plot. cool. And so this actual movie is based on a Clive Barker story called The Forbidden. And I'm just yeah. curious, Clive Barker has done a bunch. Well, I wonder why he didn't take this on a direct and make himself. Uh, from what I understand uh, from the, the extras that I watched, um, it was just, it's a very short story. Yeah. It did not have any of this backstory at all. I don't even think that they mentioned that he was an African-American or uh, came from the slave slave era or uh, post-slave yeah. era um, after the Civil War, post-Civil War. Um, I don't think any of that information was there at all. So I think this director, his wife uh, got a hold of, is it the Book of Blood? Or I can't remember what the name, the, the short story collection. that. Clive oh, Barker. I'm trying to remember what that's called. Oh, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about, though. But that it's what's um, where the forbidden is from. Yeah. Uh, Books of Blood, that's Books what it blood. is. Okay. Um, so his wife found the story, and then uh, he became fascinated with the idea and began to like fill in a lot of uh, backstory and like a reason and, and to make it subplanning into a different place, a different setting to make it. Um, but, uh, and then Tony Todd came in the picture and they, you know, filled it out even more. It yeah. changed. It, just, okay. it was like, a, that's why I said it was like Frankenstein's monster that they, they just kept adding to it and making it more and more in depth. Okay. So let's, let's, let's read down yeah. the plot and go down our, All right. our, our list of things. So the, the movie centers around a lady named Helen Lyle, uh, played by the amazing Virginia Madsen. Um, she's a Chicago graduate, uh, and she does, uh, research on urban legends, which, you know, we've talked to about on the podcast and she hears a local story about the candy man and, uh, the, the urban legend says that he can be summoned by saying his name five times. while fi- so the, uh, film candy man, uh, follows a lady named Helen Lyle played by the amazing Virginia Madsen. She's a Chicago graduate student who is researching urban legends. And she hears the story of candy man and the legend, the urban legend claims that candy man can be summoned by saying his name five times while facing a mirror and when that happens, Candyman comes to life and kills you uh, viciously. 
So when Helen's doing her research, she finds two cleaning ladies who tell her the story about a lady named Ruthie Jean, who was a resident in this housing project who they claim was killed by Candyman. Uh, Upon all of this research, Helen turns up uh, or finds out that there are 25 other murders in this area similar to Ruthie Jean's. Um, So later that evening, uh, her good friend Bernadette Walsh very skeptical of Candyman. Uh, they call Candyman's name into the mirror five times, and then nothing happens. Anything to add, Preston? Uh, going off of that, that's like just all all the setup. And so, um, I mean, we, we should mention that he. This is where we see what he looks like at at this point, which he has the hook for the hand. Right. We uh, don't know why though yet. Yeah, we don't know why. Um, but we do see what he's capable of when you say his name five times in the mirror. Correct. And it's something you don't want to be a part of. No. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, then as the story goes on, um, Helen learns from a professor that Candyman was actually the son of a slave who became actually well-known and prosperous uh, after developing a system for mass-producing shoes during the Civil War. He was he grew up in a good society, and he became a really well-known artist. Um, and he was well-known for, like, doing portraits. Um, he fell in love and fathered a child with a white woman. And back in the 1890s, that wasn't a good thing. Um, so Candyman was set upon by a lynch mob hired by the white woman's father. They cut off his hand and replaced it with a hook and then they smeared honey stolen, uh, that stolen honey, like actual honey, uh, and that attracted hungry bees, which stung him to death. And then his corpse burned, uh, in a big, uh, fire ashes scattering across everywhere, which is where now the housing project is. Which is a crazy story for an urban legend like Handyman. Yeah. So uh, with this happening, we kind of get a sense of, okay, Candyman's pissed off. <laughs> like yeah. the dude was seemed like a good dude, right? Mm-hmm. And now he's not, right? Right. So what happens after this? Um... We, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, very layered at this point. So, uh, Virginia Madsen's character, Helen, she <clears throat> does, uh, investigates it further and, uh, she begins to, she's trying to find a way to kind of, it, it, it seems like her intentions are, at least from my understanding, that there's, there's an answer for all this fear that people have and um, that uh, there's like a kid that lives around the area. And then uh, she go, he says that Candyman's in that, in this bathroom over there. And then she goes in there and the place is disgusting, has graffiti art everywhere, has shit on the walls. And, but uh, she learns that a kid was murdered there by Candyman. There's all these murders that have happened there. He was like castrated, right? Uh, yeah, sitting on the toilet. Just there's because they show the images of it. Right. Uh, they don't show the action happening, but you see the the aftermath, and that's right. what makes it scary. Is to see like all this blood on the floor, especially when it involves a child. Right. In like a horrific way. Yeah. So you can see why like this whole area is uh, fears him, and their fear is what keeps him alive. 
But um, to go down this rabbit hole, um, th- I feel like Candyman is a pretty misunderstood uh, killer. I think a lot of people think that the reason why he's killing all these people is because he has like a vengeance or wants revenge for what was done to him. Um, to me, he's because you begin to wonder like, why did they cut off his hand? Like was when they got, uh, the, the, the woman that he impregnated, uh, the father, my my thought would be like he would cut off a different body part, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? But so they cut off his painting hand because that's that's what he creates all this beautiful art with, and um, so to me now that he's as this entity or whatever he is, he's creating art again, right? Of by killing these people, and so. I, I can see that a lot of, and this is where, you know, like Frankenstein's monster of, of a story that this is, um, begins to kind of fall apart, but then some people can pick up the pieces and say that this is the reason for all of it. And because you, you, you wonder if you go into the movie with this perspective of, oh, he's just getting revenge on like, um, cause he's pissed off. It could be white people, but, but then he kills a black woman in the film and it's not through the summoning of through the mirror. Right. And so it seems more random, but, um, I, I think that he's just trying to create new art. Like if you look at the way that he kills people, the way it's, that the blood is and everything, right. it's, it's, it's artistic that he's like trying to guess paint his portraits, but through his own, you know, like what was, ha- what happened to him was terrible. So I guess he's just, I mean, vengeance, I guess is what he's after. Right. Uh, to, to some degree, I would think, I think what he's trying to do is try to keep his, his urban legend, his story alive to, um, because it, it's important for people to know that, uh, that th- th- this shit happened and, and continues that, to happen. And that's right. where the social commentary comes into play. Um, and that's a plot point of the movie, him wanting to be relevant to people today. Yeah. So with this woman, Virginia Madsen, Helen coming into it and trying to find reason for it all. Um, especially when she goes into that bathroom, somebody shows up a gang shows up right one guy who's dressed like Candyman. right and uh with a hook with a hook and then knocks her out and then the the movie makes a point of like if uh, if a uh, somebody who lived in that project black woman uh, if they were to call the cops they they wouldn't come as urgently It'd make a big deal out of it right but because it's a white woman they call Everybody, the whole force shows up and they, they look at the, the whole project top to bottom. Right, right. And uh, they're able to find the person. And then so that makes you wonder, 
like it, it, it was, it was not, it was just an urban legend. There was no truth to it. There's no actual candy man. Uh, he was just like a killer, like a legitimate killer that was in the area. But as we slowly begin to realize uh, throughout the film that uh, he's, well, not actually slowly, immediately after she leaves. Yeah, she's in the parking garage yeah. and the real candy man shows up. <laughs> yeah. Helen. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the creepiest part of the movie to me now. The reason why he's so scary to me, or that scene is so scary to me in the parking garage, is because... And I brought it up on this podcast before with uh, my sleep paralysis that I have because that's the experience that I have when you see him. It becomes it's almost like a hypnosis Real. Um, because you're just like you just see him and then that's what's happening to her. She's like um, in this hypnotic state. <clears throat> She's gone to the sunken place. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> And uh, I, when I watched the extras, they actually hip, hypnotized her. Really? Uh, it was, wow. It's very, it's very, contra- it's very controversial that because um, um, Virginia Madsen said that she would never do that again. There's like some kind of like her and the director went to like an actual hypnosis person and he learned the technique. And then there's like a safe word that or a word that gets her to fall into that state. So she, she doesn't remember any of what happens in those scenes. So that's Ooh. why it looks real. Real? Wow. That's, and, and, I didn't know that. And so, like, everybody, he, he would keep the filmmakers who were around in that particular scene or any scene that where she's in that state uh, around to keep her safe because yeah. it's a scary thing to do that. Um, and uh, he would say the safe word and wake her up out of it. But it was it was so scary for her, uh, understandably so, uh, that... Uh, <laughs> As she said that she would never do it again, and I don't think anybody has ever done anything quite like that uh, to try to get like something real, like a real reaction, right? Like that. But um, I guess we can talk a little bit about his uh, design, like his character design. So we see that he has a big overcoat, like this big fur overcoat, brown overcoat, and then underneath he's he, he's dressed. He's you know he's he was a he, how would you say it? Like he dressed uh, like a rich person for the time, because, right? Because he was well, yeah, yeah, he was well known. Um, it's and, very elegant, but also gothic in a way. Yeah, um, and so people have taken issue with his look compared to other killers because you know you look at Freddy Krueger who was burnt, right, and he has a. A revenge plan, kill, haunting, killing the kids on Elm Street. Um, and for him to go through all that torture uh, with the bees getting his hand cut off. And you see, like, the, the meat hook that's on his hand, but he was also burnt. And you don't see that side to him. He, and so people have taken issue with it because he just looks like a black man. And... Uh, that that's creating the horror. Not at all. I never got that one bit. That that's just the criticism that 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 has come up. But I feel that he, you know, he's scary because of his voice. And um, but do do you think that that was that that that's an issue that he maybe should have? Because you know, when you see him later in the film, he opens up his coat and you see that his, his rib cage, his rib cage and, the and then and then yeah. the bees yes. and everything. 
And uh, I wonder if Jordan Peele's going to hit it that harder where maybe he might have more of a burnt look or uh, bees that are constantly on him. You know what? I like the reveal of the bees inside the stomach so well because I think... I hope they don't go that route because I just think like seeing because he, he looks normal just with the coat but just with a hook hand but it is the voice that really he's really creepy in that aspect like but you also kind of like want to like him because he's kind of like a good looking guy and yeah. you know he, he look he looks he looks normal and that plays into the idea of like she's not quite sure yet until it she right. You know, later on, where looks in the mirror and then his hook hand comes crashing out. Right, right, and I and I hope like you know you don't like constantly see him with bees coming out of him, just because I think that would ruin like I don't know like the mis- mystery towards like a reveal. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think just him being black is I, I not definitely not a scary thing. I think it's it, it's the voice and like. Somebody showed up and they know my name sort of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, kind of going after, like, <clears throat> the scenes that happen after because she wakes up and then there's, she's covered in blood. Right. And then there's a dog head. And then uh, and it's she's, she's in the room of one of the people that was introduced earlier in the film who kind of tells her, was it Ruthie? No, it wasn't Ruth. Um, but it, it's one of the people who lives in in the projects. Yeah, yeah. No, and she has a baby, and so she, I remember. Is it Anne Marie McCoy? Might be by played by Vanessa Williams. Yeah, probably. yeah, yeah. That's it. <clears throat> and uh, supposedly the baby's missing. There's blood all over the crib. And then when I was watching that with my wife, she's like, "Nope, nope, nope." And I was yeah. just like, "Trust <laughs> me, get him out, I'm out." <laughs> uh, stay in this. Um, <clears throat> So you're you're constantly wondering like what is going on, and I guess that's why it works really well that you don't see those bees, like you said, as early as you do, because for all you know, that could have been another guy right. that was like just just like Candyman, yeah, or the the image that everybody says that he looks like, or the the paintings that you see on the wall. <clears throat> So you're you don't know what's real, you don't know what's fantasy until when it when it comes happening because it, it, you could take it as uh, it's all going on in her head. Well, Be- that's a big part of the movie. Yeah, that nobody believes her. Yeah. <laughs> so when all that happens, she goes to jail, um, and then uh, a psych ward. Yeah. And uh, that was a whole scary element because I. <laughs> I couldn't help but think, I, you know, thinking of like, what if my wife, you know, something happened and then she, it, it was so far fetched that how could anybody believe that? Right. And that, and that was a scary thing because of her, her, uh, ex-husband or, yes, yeah, was, or who, who, that was a whole other thing. So her, her lover or husband. Whoever. Yeah, it was her her husband who's now living, I guess, with another grad student or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, a lot of layers, lots to keep up with. Um, so for them to have that scene where she says don't you, to her husband, don't you believe me? Yeah. And, and 
and then it's like, you're my wife. Of course, I believe you. But then she says something along the lines of, uh, but you thought it right. Like you thought that I was this crazy. Because like she's framed for like killing people. Yeah. But like Candyman, the actual Candyman like sets her up to like makes it look like she's framed or like she did it. And like, what do you think that is? I think really like. I mean, we're going to spoil the movie anyway. That's fine. But, I mean, I think that he's grooming her to be, like, the next chosen one, basically, to replace him. Has to put her in that kind of doomed state where she feels like nobody is on her side, similarly to, like, how he was back in that time. Um, But then, you know... Parts of you, when you see the movie go f- even forward uh, more along, like so, when she's in the psych ward, she's talking to like the the head guy, and uh, he, he, she's trying to explain all of what happened, like why, like why she woke up uh, the way she did, and where's the child that's missing, and she, uh, the only way that she can make sense of it is to say that it was Candyman, and you don't know if maybe Candyman actually did those things or maybe he put her in that hypnosis state yeah had her do those things like a puppeteer like he's puppeteering her um kind of like brain scan (laughs) yeah um but uh and then we get like a really cool visual scene so when she she's telling this uh guy the psych ward about like that it was Candyman, and i'm gonna prove it to you how and she tries to summon him by looking in the mirror says Candyman. Uh, five times and then uh, he appears uh, in a shocking way where you don't even see him and then the hook comes through the guy and uh and then he just flies out of the window like batman no yeah i totally remember i remember that was in the trailer too it was a really cool really cool i mean i think like now when you can like slow it you can like see the wires but it's (laughs) it, 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 it it looks really cool uh, for how fast it happens, it, it puts it in that dream state where you still don't quite know if it's still in her head because if they, cause he frees her from, cause she's shackled right. to the chair. And if she, if he died and she was still shackled, then that would be the proof, right? That's something else from the outside. Cause the window's broken, but no, she leaves. And then that, and then there's still that possibility going forward that it could still be in her head because he, she could have killed him. Right. Um, but then, you know, we, we reach a certain point in the film where she, she goes back to, uh, the projects, uh, Cabrini green and goes to his lair where he's sleeping. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and then that's when you understand like why he want like what his overall goal is and why he wants her as his uh, victim because she is just as uh, passionate about what she's involved in him being painting and then in the art and then her for writing and everything like he sees like that she's like the perfect person but she also fits the bill of being the the person that who was her lover back yeah they strike a very similar physical resemblance yeah, yeah. and then, and then you begin to wonder is this her reincarnated right and uh, you never quite know you don't get that um but 
Um, you can only assume, if you take it at face value, that's what you can assume, that she is this person who is, uh, you know, I've said it, fill in the void, but fill in that whole being uh, being the the person from his past and then the whole baby aspect of the baby being there because the baby is in that layer and Candyman has the baby and that they would die in the way that that where they could all be together and like um so when uh did you watch the unrated cut of the film? Yes, yes, yes. So in the unrated cut, we get uh, the kiss of where he has all these bees. Right. Where you see the bees that are in his chest, and then because he opens his coat, and you see all the bees. And then uh, he opens his mouth, and all these bees come out, and he kisses her. Um, so it's supposed to mirror, like, Phantom of the Opera. And um, going forward from there... Um, you know, she's still a human who has her own her her own choices. So she hears the baby like out in this rumble pile, mm-hmm. and she tries to save the baby. And then Candyman's there, and then the people who live in the area see that Candyman is in that in that pile, and so they light the pile on fire. And then that's that's how you think that the movie's going to end right. with all of them dying together, and he accomplished what he intended to. But she manages to escape with the baby, but she burns. Badly. Very badly. Doesn't die, though. Uh, Right away. Yeah. Um, And gives the baby to the the mom. And so part of you wonders, um, is is her character completely redeemed in their eyes that that she did this and saved the baby and that everybody who thought that she killed the baby or took the baby that that it's not true that she it was Candyman because after that fact she does die and then there's the funeral and right. then it's just the the husband that's there with his new girlfriend and then everybody from the projects come right. to the funeral and something happens at the funeral which seems like kind of silly but I wonder if that was like the actual what happened. What at the very end of the movie they toss the the hook, hook into the grave that she that they know that because of what happened that she's going to be the new Candyman and then yeah. that it's almost like a like a peace offering in a way right of giving giving her the hook so she can take on this role. <clears throat> but then you know how the film ends. It ends with her being the next Candyman and being summoned uh, accidentally by her dumbass husband who says Helen (laughs) five times in the mirror in the bathroom because he's very emotional. And he's just like, you know, Helen, Helen, Helen. You you know, like all been out of shape and uh, summons her. And then she looks like Hellfire uh, and demonic and yeah. stuff like that. Not, not like well, Candyman. So yeah, um, it's yeah. That's where the there's so many different perspectives uh, or different uh, theories that you can come up with of the film. And you know, going forward in the sequels, it's not her that comes back as Candyman because you know Candyman at this point is a more uh, sinister presence than, um, you know, a woman in a, a nightgown 
uh, I don't remember if she had like an oxygen tank or <laughs> <Yeah>. something, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, he comes back in the, in the sequels, but it, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you saw Halloween four as its own film right. and it didn't go the way that it did in the fifth one, that there's so many sequels that you can come up, come up with on your own from that original film. And then, like, diving into the second and third film, they go more into the backstory, and they actually show you scenes of from his past of when he when he got his hand cut off and things. Um, so they they further illustrate like what happened to him, and it, it it makes the film the first film even better. But there are all those questions just all over the place of like what this means, what that means throughout Candyman that we can pick apart and you can kind of see it as like a a plot hole or you can see it as it's just this uh, fantasy state that all that can happen and you don't know what's real. You don't know what's uh, fate or fantasy. And so it plays into the whole theme of the film. And that's why I think it's a perfect film because uh, it, it, it's still effective based off of its mood and doesn't need to give you all the answers that it it need that maybe audiences are chasing and that people are still uh, trying to make sense of today. Like when I mentioned earlier about the extras that are in this film, there's two writers that um, actually say, pick it apart a little bit and say, like, why would he kill that black woman? Um, when he's well, trying- why would he want to set the whole housing project on fire if, you know, yeah. you know, but... Like his legend dies, hers begins. Um, yeah, it's just there's a lot of things. It's it's pretty interesting to think, but I think that I, he wants to keep his story alive, like you said. And I think that he, yes, he is a misunderstood killer. But do you think he's actually evil? Um. Well, going forward in the franchise, yes. Right. Um, well, I th- well. Because it changed. Yes. But in this film, I think that he doesn't see himself as evil. He's just creating art the way that he knows how to, at least from the way that he was treated. Um, So, but to be dumb and try to summon him through the mirror, uh, I mean, from, from a victim's point of view, yes, he's evil. Right, right. I mean, but you look at it, you like he castrated a young boy, he killed a dog, you yeah. know, he kidnapped a baby, you know. It's those are pretty big deals. Yeah, but all that horror leads to the story of him, and right. the reason why uh, he's doing what he's doing. So that's, I think that's just it's just like an essay to really prove his point. Of like what all happened to him, because that will still keep his story alive, and what happened to him in in the minds of people who may completely are, are ignorant and don't realize that. Right, because he wanted to have a family, he wanted the baby, and he found Virginia Madison, Madsen, who very much resembled his previous wife. Yeah, and he's passing along his powers to her so she can keep alive and maybe the baby or something like that. I don't know. Like they could be a family of killers. Yeah, no, for sure. Get into Chucky territory, really. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I think there's a lot more underneath the slasher element of this film and I, it's still good. Like you watch it and you're like, wow, this movie's still scary. 
it's relevant. And even when Jordan Peele is making it today, you can't help but realize like, wow, what are they going to bring in, you know, mm-hmm. currently? Yeah. Into um, the mix. We should also mention like why he's called Candyman because somebody could watch this and be like, why, why is he called that? Because there is a shot in the film where there's like treats, mm-hmm. sweets, and he even says like a line about that, sweets for my sweets. Um, and there's like a razor blade in the, in the candy, but, uh, Candyman, you know, being, you know, nature's honey of all the honey that was put on him. Right. Um, so he kind of took Hell of a way to go. Yeah. And um, then, yeah. Yeah, and then the bees uh, like kind of obey his command a little right. bit, especially in the sequels. It's like Batman. The yeah, bat just takes the on his fear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, the score for this movie is one of my favorites. Yeah. You know, it goes like done by Philip Glass, which is crazy to me. What else does he do? Well, Philip Glass is like that famous composer who, like Koi Annie Scotty, the Kotzi trilogy. Um, but Philip Glass, like, as far as uh, movies go, I don't know if he's done another, like, real horror movie. But it's... Uh, well, yeah, the score has, like, that gothic romance yeah. feel, which is what they hit, hit at in that scene when he gives her the kiss, which is like Phantom of the Opera. And oh. so that's when you realize, oh, man, this isn't just, like, just a horror movie. Like, it has a whole other side to it. Right, right. He also did Kundun and The Hours, mm-hmm. um, at least award-wise. But yeah, he's um, this. I think this is his most iconic score, uh, minus like Koyan Iskatsi or something like that. Like Koyan Iskatsi, you, you've heard that, right? Yeah. Um, but with this, that just that do 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 do, and it's just like one like little piano note after the other. Yeah. Uh, it's very good, and it's almost like it romantic mm-hmm. because do you think his character just wants to be with her and be with a kid in the end well yeah i mean that's what he's been wanting this entire time he wanted to be happy with her and like you know can it really explain like how you feel yeah. he's misunderstood like you yeah. said <laughs> yeah. which is a great way to put it so um i don't know what is but based off this first film, you don't really know what his true, true intentions were. But my my only assumption would be that yeah, he wanted he wanted his family because he was dead. At, that he wants to be, have his family in the afterlife and like on his terms. Right. No. And hell of a way to do it. The, the movie is still so good. We can't recommend this movie enough because. Like we said, still so many years after. How many years is this after? 26? Yeah. Um, it still holds up. And the performances are damn good. Like, Tony Todd is forever remembered as Candyman. <laughs> yeah, he, he said in the extras that, uh, like, when he, people are giving it a eulogy, that they're probably going to put Candyman in there and he'd be totally okay with it. <laughs> um <laughs> And that, that that's he has like two hundred credits, but that's the one that he's known for. No, yeah, no, he's been in a ton of stuff, and like, wasn't he in uh, The Rock by Michael with Michael Bay? Wasn't he one of the soldiers with Ed Harris? Maybe I'm not entirely sure. I think sure. he is. Um, but yeah, he's he's just great. And Virginia Madsen, you know, you really remember recently, I guess, from Sideways, really. 
But she's so good here. And joy. Yep. And joy, yes. <laughs> Why did they call it joy? Um, the title can- character. <laughs> Candyman. Damn good. And Scream Factory really outdid themselves with it. <laughs> Two discs, tons of extras, and a good score from Phil Glass, which I do believe, I guess Tony Todd said that they released a very limited soundtrack or very limited release of the soundtrack in 2015 to the film. And I don't remember seeing it because I would totally own that because that is a very creepy score, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, anything else about Candyman? No, I think that, I mean, I'm sure there is, there's, if we were to go even further down the, the, the plot, that there's more stuff to kind of pick out, but I think we scratched all the services that need to be scratched. Well, yeah, we, but before we get off of Candyman, we have to say that uh, Eddie Murphy was actually the yeah. original choice to play Candyman, but the filmmakers couldn't afford him, <laughs> which... It worked out for the better, I would think. Oh, yeah, Tony Todd's amazing, but, like, you almost want to see... I mean, I guess Eddie Murphy kind of played, like, Vampire in Brooklyn, but to play this character and Eddie Murphy back in 1992 when he was making... Like mostly comedies or like more comedic dramas, yeah. you just have to think, holy shit, to see Eddie Murphy play this role. And I'm like trying to think of his voice. He's like, oh, Axel Foley playing a killer, you know? Hey, be my victim. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very interesting. And I guess uh, they really wanted Virginia Madsen to be um, in this role, but if she said no, they were going to try to uh, go with Sandra Bullock. But. Hmm. That didn't do either. So luckily we got both these characters. And can you see anybody else besides Tony Todd playing this? I'm trying to think. And I guess- uh, I'm sure there's like an unknown person or like maybe like a for somebody who's already in the entertainment industry right now and is at least known in some degree would be like like some secondary character from like Black Panther or something like, like that. Like can you see Idris Elba play in this role? <clears throat> like he's too, like people would be out I of the movie with that. He'd be the same age as Tony Todd almost and so Tony Todd should just do it. Yeah, no, Tony um, Todd should do this role. But, um, yeah, I don't know what Jordan's going to do. Uh I'd, I'd be, like I said, like I trust him and I hope that he would find somebody that would be a menacing presence because I, I, I know partly why they didn't cast uh, Eddie Murphy was because he was too short, too. Yeah, he's and, a... And, and Tony Todd's like six foot five or something like that. <laughs> he's very tall. But, but uh, for the character that they've created here for how, like, Shakespearean he is... yeah. And, in his language. For sure, for sure. Uh, Tony Todd has that background, and that's why it worked really well for him, and they shaped the character into who he is. Um, so, I yeah, I don't know what direction um, Jordan Peele would take it in, but coming off of Get Out and how subtle some of the ideas that he has in, those, in, in that particular film and just imagining like what he could do in this world, um, I'm excited. I'm excited too. Go check out Candyman. Uh, Preston, our 30th episode is coming up. Yeah. Do we have a plan? Uh, is it going to be Critters? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, or should we save it for the 30th episode? Well, isn't our... No, I mean like save like what we're going to talk about. Because I don't know what we're going to talk about yet. <laughs> Oh, because we don't know the true facts yet. Right. Like if it's going to be in place. But I think uh, we could just tease the possibility of... Okay. Uh, uh, so our uh, plan is to have... 
somebody, an actress on our show to talk about a film that she's in, or uh, we would um, talk about another big film in that spot. So Right. So we, we saw this movie a couple years ago at a film festival, and it's finally getting released, and it will coincide with kind of like the holidays. Yes. So we'll hope it all works out, but we'll have another special guest on um, next week for our 30th episode, which will be very cool. And, uh, yeah, that is our 29th podcast, My Bloody Podcast, on iTunes, Stitcher Radio. You can find it on Boomstick Comics, amongst other places. And you can find Press and Barta, the man, the myth, the legend, the urban legend, the candy man himself. (laughs) Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Preston Barta, B-A-R-T-A, and I am writing for the Ditton Record Chronicle, uh, weekly theatrical reviews and Blu-ray reviews and 4K reviews, things like that. And I'm also the features editor at FreshFiction.tv, where we're publishing all kinds of fun and original articles about what's in theaters. So that's where I'm at. Sounds good, and we'll see you next week with a big 30th episode. Until then, watch Candyman on Screen Factory and buy Mondo's Castlevania uh, albums, as well as watch uh, Single White Female, and uh, you'll like my mother. (laughs) 